0: Welcome to Women in Venture Capital, a podcast by students for students. I'm Roshvina.
1: And I'm Anvita. And we are from the Harvard Business School. Today, we have a very special guest with us. Women in Venture Capital podcast has its first male guest on the show, and no one better than Jeff Busgang could have done this honor for us. As many of you may know, Jeff is a general partner at Flybridge Capital in Boston, He's also a professor at HBS, teaching the course Launching Technology Ventures. He also runs a microseed fund, the graduate syndicate for businesses by Harvard graduates. Jeff has been the co-founder of UPromise, a loyalty marketing firm that was acquired by Sally May and the VP of a public-listed entity into e-commerce internet software. Jeff holds a BA in computer science from Harvard University and an MBA from HBS. Jeff has also authored two books for founders and startup journeys, in addition to being an active community member. He's the co-chairman at an educational nonprofit facing history and ourselves, co-founder of Hack.Diversity, solving for employment of minority employees in Boston, co-chair of an immigration reform nonprofit, and co-founder of a progressive policy organization, the Alliance for Business Leadership. Jeff also serves on the board of NEVCA and EDX. After their youth success of launching X-Factor, Jeff's fund, Flybridge Capital has recently launched a community fund to invest in companies through an investment partner team. Congratulations on this commendable journey, and thanks so much for joining us on the show. It's an absolute pleasure.
2: Thanks, Anvita and Rashmina. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to be here because I'm just amazed at what you two are creating from whole cloth to bring attention to venture capital and women in venture capital to the Harvard community. So thank you both.
1: So jumping right in, given your deep experience in business building, as well as investing, what are some of the emerging themes you've seen in venture capital in the current environment?
2: So what's been really interesting for those of us in the industry is that in March, when the pandemic swept through the United States, we all braced for the worst. And a few months later, we have seen the best from a business standpoint. And what I mean by that is all of our companies, and I think this is true across many other venture capitalist portfolios, have benefited in many ways from the acceleration to online, from the acceleration and mainstream adoption of the cloud, from surges in categories like ed tech, collaboration, online shopping and grocery, so it's it's really been fascinating. Yes, we've had many of our companies struggle, but by and large, as I said, where we all thought this was going to be a pretty horrific year, it's ended up being a, a pretty spectacular year for venture capital, not only for our portfolio, as I said, but I think categorically across the board. And you've seen that as evidenced by the NASDAQ jump in almost all of the major tech stocks and even the secondary tech stocks that are publicly listed.
0: Right. Over the last few months, we've engaged with aspiring investors in our class to get a better sense of where their interest lies sector-wise. And while emphasis in the venture industry has been a lot on software and fintech for the last couple of years, a large number of folks are actually interested in biotech and life sciences. What advice would you have for those people looking to explore investing in life sciences in terms of general resources, but also what they can access in Boston and at HBS?
2: Well, first, I think that focus is very well-placed. I think we're entering into an extraordinary phase of innovation in life sciences. It's not a field that I personally invest in, but I have seen quite a lot of activity in adjacent areas, for example, genomics and the impact that IT and big data is having on life sciences, personalized medicine, more efficient drug discovery. There's just a a wealth of innovations as engineering practices, technology, software are being applied to the life sciences. And so I think the advice I would give students is take advantage of the fact that Boston is the mecca for life sciences. There's a joke that circled around Boston for uh, the last five or six years, which is that I don't know what the question is in every boardroom in a biotech uh, board of Directors meeting in the world, but somehow the answer has been Kendall Square. Whatever that question is, Kendall Square in Cambridge seems to be the answer because everybody, everybody was coming into Kendall Square, and that's led to an surge of activity in the ecosystem, in the research labs, and the venture capital firms, and the large biotechs, and the hospitals. And so I would just say to to folks, get um, you know, get engaged in the community. There's an extraordinarily strong biotech community, biotech VC community, entrepreneurial community, scientific community. Don't be afraid of the science. Try to learn the science. Don't be afraid of the analytics. Try to learn the analytics and look for those points of intersection where you can bring things together. You know, engineering applied to um, life sciences, or as I said, machine learning and big data applied to life sciences, because at those intersections is where a lot of the magic is.
1: Networking is definitely at the heart of venture capital. I think you put it very well. Switching gears a little bit, uh, data highlights that having gender-diverse founding teams are 21% more likely to have financial returns above their industry benchmarks. Yet, only 14% of total funding in 2018 was diverted to gender-diverse teams. Founded by you, X-Factor Ventures aims to balance exactly this and back all female businesses. One of the X-Venture partners refers to her experience as a masterclass in venture capital. And since inception, your fund has invested in over 40 female-founded startups. How has your experience been running X-Factor Ventures? Have you seen venture funds in the ecosystem open to bringing in more diverse teams in their portfolios?
2: So first, I want to clarify that X-Factor was co-founded by Flybridge as an institution. And in particular, my partner, Chip Hazard, has been the leader of it and has done a fantastic job of driving the initiative in partnership with the female investment team in particular, Anna Palmer, who's one of the investment partners who co-founded it with CHIP and really has helped us in understanding the need for a focused fund for female founders. It's been an amazing experience. I think what we uh, have realized is how weak our deal flow was with female founders. You know, We thought we had excellent deal flow in our categories, and in particular, in our two main geographies of New York and Boston. We thought... Like many VC funds, we quote unquote saw everything in the category, in the sectors that we cared about. And then we recruited this team of 10 phenomenally talented female CEOs, and it's now grown to 20 CEOs. And what we realized is that that team are deal magnets, each as individuals, with a set of founders that aren't coming to institutional venture capital firms. They're bouncing their ideas off at a very early stage with people they're comfortable with, typically other female CEOs who they want to share and collaborate with and get advice from, and, and they're not coming to the male-dominated venture capital firms. And so when Chip brought this to us, this idea, you know, this wasn't about social engineering or charity. This was opportunity. This, and we'll, you'll hear this theme from me in my other initiatives. This is, a, this is business. This is finding investment opportunities where other people aren't looking. And so to your question, Anvita, yes, there are other firms that are beginning to move in this area, and certainly there are some fantastic female-led VC funds, whether it's Inspired Capital with Alexa Von Tobel or many others, um, Aileen Lee and Cowboy Ventures, who, who we love and respect and co-invest with. Um, but you know, in, in the $450 billion of assets under management, I think there's room for a couple hundred extra million, maybe a couple extra tens of billions of dollars in the hands of female Um, investment managers. And I hope we'll see that trend continue.
0: You brought up some really important points about um, funding in general towards women. And you've been writing about gender representation in the venture industry for a while. And um, I definitely, before interviewing you today, I definitely read some of your articles. And in one particular article that you wrote about 10 years ago, you said um, you found the preponderance of males in VC annoying another woman trying to break into the industry and looking for role models, I do echo that sentiment. You quoted the 25% of all VC firms that have a single female partner. That number is closer to 35% today. So some improvement, but at a pretty slow pace. There are a number of rationales you mentioned in that article that could explain or help explain the lack of women in the industry. Um, The first one being that the industry is clubby and the lack of female role models, and first degree connections makes it hard to lift other women up. Um, Secondly, fewer women are in technical areas, which I personally feel has changed since then, but would love to hear your thoughts on it. And finally, women are more risk averse than men. So my question is, from what you've seen, have these rationales changed over time? What in your opinion explains these numbers, which are improving, but still low compared to other industries?
2: The numbers are improving, but it is way too slow and still way too imbalanced. There are definitely good signs. I haven't seen this data, but my own anecdotal data from the young VCs that I'm in contact with and that are in my network is I feel that the gender balance, if you looked only at the, let's say, 25 to 35-year-old VC cohort, that has improved dramatically. The issue is the industry is an industry of longevity. It's one of the things that's so special and yet so pernicious about this industry. It takes eight to 10 years for these startups to mature. It takes 10 to 15 years for each fund to go through its process. And many of these um, careers that venture capitalists embark on, including myself now 18 years in for myself, measure in decades. And so there's not a, a lot of room and dynamism in the industry. All that said... The numbers are getting better, and I think the number of role models and the number of superstar female VCs has now extraordinary. I mean, whether it's Kristen Green at Forerunner and the extraordinary firm that she's building, or um, you know some of the some of the leaders of major firms like Mary Meeker, who spun the late stage um, firm out of uh, growth firm out of Kleiner Perkins that she built. You know, there are some some phenomenal women leaders who are running phenomenally interesting firms. And Rashvina, to your question about sectors and technical elements, I do think that's changing dramatically. Katie Ray, who runs The Engine, which is the tough tech uh, early stage fund out of MIT, um, is another great example of that. We're seeing a lot of terrific depth in a broad range of areas. And so I'm actually more hopeful about gender bias than I've ever been. In the venture capital industry. It still is not where it should be. But for the first time, I feel like it's heading in an inexorable direction that is going to eventually reach a 50-50 balance. It just feels like it's moving cleanly in that direction. Racial bias, maybe we'll talk about later. I'm not as confident in, and I still feel like we have so much work to do. We have a lot of work to do in gender bias, but racial bias, I feel like there's still some such dramatic, strong um, inherent obstacles that it's, it's uh, unfortunately not coming together and heading in as, as strong a direction as rapidly as I'd like to see.
1: So building on the same point of having racial diversity in teams, you've also co-founded Hack.Diversity, which is a nonprofit that aims to create employment opportunities for Black and Latinx engineers in Boston. The fellows here you mentioned go from a minimum wage job as a dishwasher to a software engineering job paying 100000 at firms like Drift, Rapid7, or Wayfair. And this year, you plan to get 85% plus of the 75 fellows their first internship. That's very impressive. What have been your key takeaways in driving access to opportunities across organizations? What can investors do to help entrepreneurs, especially founding teams that lack diversity, build a diverse team? And finally, what are some of the mistakes you see founders make when building their teams and culture?
2: And Vita, that's a lot of material to unpack. Let me see if I can, in a concise fashion, address a couple of those terrific questions. So first, I'll tell you a story. One of our Hack Diversity fellows applied to a job at a company, sent his resume in, not once, not twice, but three times, and didn't get even a response. No thank you, no interview, and certainly no serious consideration. He entered into our program and after our six-month training program, we have a matching process where the fellows present themselves to the companies, the companies present themselves to the fellows, and then we do like a medical matching process based on the ranked order that each side would like to have. That particular company who met that individual ranked him number one across all 75 fellows of who they wanted to hire as a paid intern on their team. And he's the same person who applied to that same company just a few months ago. So why did he get such amazing response? It's because he had access to the right people. He was affiliated with a platform and a pedigree that put him above the noise. And they saw it past for the first time. They saw it past the traditional measures. The thing that's amazing to me is that with, uh, with this, stripping away pedigree and just looking at skills, that's really the big lesson that I've learned from the work at Hack Diversity, is that when companies worry less about pedigree and more about skills-based hiring and testing and evaluating candidates, whether they went to a community college, whether it took them six years to get a degree, whether they even are a dropout and made their way through a boot bootcamp, those, those are the lessons that I think are most powerful. And then in terms of culture, you know, diversity and inclusion, diversity, diversity, equity and inclusion, all three words matter. You need to see equity. You need to see inclusion. You need to have an inclusive environment, not just a diverse environment. And you need to give people space to be themselves. And I think startups are well suited for that culturally. We have fewer restrictions and fewer rules and less bureaucracy. But the leaders need to really embrace those cultural values
0: right and that's quite a story um i i can understand your motivation to change that um so i was reading your takeaways from a national venture capital association panel that you were a part of a couple of years ago and one of the things you mentioned was that was highly discussed was how to make sure the industry recruits junior women into the business from business schools and the industry And then do not lose talent as they progress. Because uh, based on our conversations with a lot of women, a big concern is um, the possibility of getting stuck at the junior level. Do you see that happening? Do you see a push to get junior women into the industry? What advice do you have for those junior women trying to break in?
2: There is great momentum in bringing junior women into the industry, yes. Yes. My data at HBS is that over the last 10 years that I've been teaching at HBS, if I look at the number of HBS grads who have gone into venture capital out of school, it's been pretty nearly 50-50 gender balance with a particular tilt in recent years. So that's very positive. Advancing to the partner level, as you note, Rashvina, that's the trick. And I think what students and young professionals, particularly women, need to think about carefully is when they join a firm, are they going to be taken seriously? Are they going to be brought into the inner circle over time? Are they going to be given a chance to become a partner? Is this a culture and a firm whose values they want to embrace? And would they want to be a partner in that firm? Because if you don't think you would want to be a partner in that firm, you probably shouldn't join. You probably should be patient and wait and see if you can find a place where you can really feel confident and comfortable that you're going to be taken seriously and you're going to be given growth opportunities and be truly mentored. I think the most important thing that you can look for is a mentor who's going to really invest in your career and care about your um, progression. And so, because our business, by the way, we're terrible at mentoring young professionals. We're so focused on deals and portfolio companies and boards and transactions and limited partners and fundraising. We're horrible at, at management. Venture capitalists are the worst managers uh, in the world. And so making sure you're joining a firm and and selecting a mentor at that firm who's really willing to invest in you and manage you in an old-fashioned way and really uh, invest in your development, that's the key.
1: That's actually very well put. And having done venture investing in the past, I completely second your your thought that it's on you to own your growth in the organization and it's better to set expectations going in and knowing the culture you're entering in before you make the decision. So that makes a lot of sense. One of the very interesting things I came across uh, from your numerous initiatives that you do has been this rocket ship list, uh, which is a comprehensive list of exciting and growing startups that are actively hiring which has served as a resourceful tool for folks to join and join startups and find opportunities. Um, the list aids many strong candidates to start or continue their career in the startup land, as you call it. You mentioned that some of your criteria for businesses to be on that list is a mix of fundraising, scale, momentum, and hiring. Could you talk a little bit about your inspiration to build this every cycle? What's your approach towards building this list essentially?
2: Yeah, the inspiration is that many of our students don't have this idea for a startup that they're willing and ready to take on. In fact, the majority of our students are joiners. They're going to join a startup that already exists, that's already been founded. And so the key question I would repeatedly get is, what startup should I join? Who are some of the startups that are high potential? Because you want to join a winner. You don't want to join a loser. And if you're going to join a winner, you want to join a winner that can really advance your career and jump on the rocket ship. It's what happened to me when I graduated from business school back in 1995. I joined a Series A startup that went public a year after I joined, went from 30 people to 500 people in two or three years, and from essentially zero to 100 million of revenue during that period. So that completely made my career. So that's what inspired my creation of the list. The methodology is I go through every single startup that's been invested in in the U.S. and in some parts of the globe, and try to filter out with a range of criteria the few hundred that I think have the momentum and the scale and the potential to be great places for new young professionals to jump on board. They've got to be hiring. They've got to be growing. They've got to be well-positioned. They've got to be well-financed. And they've got to be in sectors that have massive, massive tailwinds. And normally that ends up being four or five or 600 companies across the world that I categorize by geography, because I think geography matters tremendously, even in the age of COVID for career building. But uh, this last year, it was a very tough year because of so many layoffs. I did the list in March, which is when I usually do it. But by the time I published it in April or May, everybody was laying people off. And so I had to whittle down the list as people were pulling their job postings and cutting announcing cuts. To around 150 companies. I'm looking forward to doing the list again in 2021, and I'll get an early start. I hope and have a uh, you know back to the four or five hundred great companies that people can join in the class of 2021.
0: And I'm really looking forward to uh, taking a look at that list um, and going through and learning about all these exciting companies. Um, so we are going to try to wrap up the conversation with going back to the investing side of things. Um, with your experience in running a fund, um, what would your advice be to folks looking to build the careers in investing, generally and also for women? What should be their strategy to effectively find their fit?
2: First, I would observe that operating experience is incredibly valuable. There are many, many investors who don't have it, including Uh, One of my partners who actually Chip Hazard, who I mentioned, who's a fantastic investor with a great track record and who was the the co-founder, as I mentioned, of X-Factor. He was a classic two years at Bain, uh, you know, two years at Harvard MBA, jumped right into investing as an associate at Greylock and worked his way to partner very rapidly. And he's a brilliant investor. So even in the era of the 2020s, there are plenty of great investors who don't have operating experience. That said, you are advantaged if you have excellent operating experience. There's a reason the phrase PayPal mafia means something. There's a reason the phrase Twitter mafia, Facebook mafia means something. Those networks are incredibly valuable. Those experiences are incredibly valuable. And that's why back to the rocket ship list, being a part of and getting operating experience and a winner and a massive winner is gold. So that's the first observation I would make. The second observation I would make is, When you network with friends in your industry, when you talk to founders, always ask yourself, would I invest my own money personally in this company? And maybe at some point, once you pay down those loans and once you get your feet under your belt, you'll start writing checks. And in today's environment, you can write $5,000 checks, $2,500 checks, even $1,000 checks in various startups. And so start writing checks and start pushing yourself to make those decisions and go over the line and make a commitment and build that angel portfolio. And with a little bit of time and a little bit of an angel portfolio and some strong operating experience, I think you will find you're going to be a very well-positioned investor. I was getting together recently outdoors in a very safe fashion, of course, with a friend who's a general partner at B Capital, Karen Page, and Karen has amazing operating experience from 10 years at Box Group, which she joined as a very early employee in a mid-level role and rose through the ranks as the company grew over 10 years, went public and became a multi-billion dollar enterprise software company. Her experience is gold. And so investors started asking her, hey, Karen, will you advise my startup? Hey, Karen, will you be on the board of my startup? And she joined the board of one of my portfolio companies. And then as she went along, she started writing small checks and angel investing and then people said to her, hey, Karen, would you join my fund? And so now she's the general partner of a multi-billion dollar assets under management venture firm, one of five managing partners, not having worked her way up through the ranks as an associate, senior associate principal, but by having been an excellent operator, an excellent angel investor, an excellent advisor, and now um, you know, embarking on a career to be an excellent venture capitalist.
1: That's definitely one very effective advice there. And Again, in some sense, having spent close to three years as an operator myself, I completely can relate. Having an operating experience is cold because you've seen the other side as a founder, you empathize with the team um, in a lot, lot different sense. Wrapping up this conversation, uh, what are some of the misconceptions you think people have about venture capital? And it is not unusual for people to claim that venture investing is a small, closed ecosystem, almost like a black box. So could you help bust some myths about the work culture, what to expect at a VC job, what to be cautious about, and what to definitely watch out for?
2: So first of all, this is a business full of failure. We only talk about our successes, but we fail six, seven, eight times out of the 10 times that we try. We only have one or two big successes out of 10, maybe even out of 20 companies that we invest in. So underneath the hood, there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of rejection. There's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of companies going out of business and laying people off and firing founders or CEOs and crappy board meetings. So you just have to be ready for hard work, gritty work, and a lot of failure. Now, in the grand scheme of things, it's a fantastic, I think, fantastic field. And it's a complete privilege to be in it. But it's not all glamour. It's certainly not easy. And it's a very, very humbling business because you're only as good as your last investment. And that last investment, the moment you write that check, you think it's going to be the next Facebook. And then a year in, two years in, you realize that you're not going to raise the next round of funding. You're behind plan. The two fit co-founders don't get along anymore and are asking the board to choose one or the other. It's, it can be ugly. It can be messy. That's really the lesson.
0: Thank you for, for your candid take on this. And I've definitely heard some of these themes before. Um, thank you, Jeff, for being on the show today and giving us um, so many insights on the industry. Um, a lot of your initiatives that I find um, really inspiring and, um, you know, the movement towards having more diversity, whether that's gender or race in the industry. Thank you so much. And I'm sure there are a lot of people out there who are going to really enjoy this conversation.
2: Thank you both. And congrats again on a great podcast. You guys are just killing it. I love seeing it.